Hello and welcome to the Clax Women for Indie podcast, episode 58. It's the middle of February and this music we listen to is called Fresh Fallen Snow by Chris Haugen. And looking outside the window, Clackmanninshire is white right now, so it seemed appropriate. So it's February and where are we? We're still in lockdown, still out of the EU, still part of the UK. So that doesn't seem to be a very promising start for making a podcast, does it? But let's see what we can pull together. Last week saw the premiere of Leslie Riddick's latest film. This one was about Estonia, the Baltic Tiger, and it was premiered on YouTube, followed by our Q&A session. And it's a beautiful film, definitely worth seeing the whole thing. And just looking at the YouTube channel now, Leslie premiered the film on 31st of January. It's now the, well, as I'm recording this bit, it's the 8th of February. So that's just a little over a week. And it's had 24,000 plus views. And to say that no mainstream filmmaker or TV channel is interested. It just shows the poverty of their imagination and and they really are missing a treat. Estonia has a very interesting story to tell, having become independent after years of under the Soviet rule. And they have lots and lots of lessons for us. So I'm just going to start off with a couple of clips of things I thought were particularly inspiring. Imagine having a superpower as a neighbour, one that ruled your country, sent thousands to Siberia, still invades other neighbours, and whose people form a third of your independent country today. It took three years after independence for the last Russian military to leave. Now, Estonia has an army of its own and an international peacekeeping role. It has 3,000 full-time soldiers, but 20,000 in reserve, and the support of its NATO family since it joined in 2004. It's probably fair to say that joining NATO was uh, was more of an important milestone and, and more of a something which is uh, is widely perceived in Estonia as a cornerstone of Estonia's defence policy. However, joining the EU was much broader uh, political project, which also means uh, not just economic uh, consequences and uh, and benefits uh, but uh, also uh, wider political cultural changes uh, being part of the uh, the common uh, labor market which is something that uh, has uh, impacted uh, uh, not just the Estonian economy but also tens of thousands of people in in Estonia there's been a lot of EU money flowing into the country a lot of European companies Scandinavian companies coming here, investing here, creating jobs, bringing in money. It's been very interesting times to live through, uh, to see this, uh, this transition in, uh, in the country uh, happening within, basically within a generation. I'd like to think that we can still build a friendly, inviting country for the generations to come. But at the same time, of course, uh, the European Union uh, will hopefully be in the future a place where people can work and travel freely and Estonia 
uh, is not going anywhere uh, from the uh, from the EU at least. Uh, I hope I won't. I will never see that happen. And by the way, I hope uh, we will soon have Scotland uh, in the EU one way or another. Not being cheeky, but you don't look like you were born when your country became independent. No. no. <laughs> right. So why is it so important for you still to come out and celebrate? Because you are independent. You don't need to keep celebrating it. We're raised very patriotic. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like a very nice feeling that you're here and Estonia got free and independent. And just looking at the Estonian flags, it's just something that we're kind of born with. Just respecting that. The stories of our grandparents and uh, parents uh, are the reason we come here and celebrate uh, our freedom and independence. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could cast our minds forward 10, 20, 30 years and have our children and grandchildren meeting in the town square celebrating Scottish Independence Day and sparing a thought for their parents and grandparents who made it happen. That's us. <laughs> So as I say, beautiful film that Leslie's created. It's uh, available all over the place. We've posted links to it on our Facebook and YouTube channel and retweeted it. But if you just go into YouTube and search for Estonia, the Baltic Tiger, you'll find it. So another feisty woman that caught my attention this week was Ruth Watson, who you'll all know from Keep Scotland the Brand. Ruth was on Broadcasting Scotland last week and treated us to what I can only describe as a vintage Ruth rant, passionately and articulately delivered. The Conservative Party is under growing pressure to discipline backbench MP Sir Desmond Swain after he refused to back down from baseless claims that NHS capacity figures had been manipulated to exaggerate the scale of the pandemic. Swain, a former minister, refused to apologise after the emergence of a November interview in which he urged a, fr a fringe coronavirus deniers group that suggested the pandemic could be a hoax to persist in protesting against lockdown. The Save Our Rights UK group has also published videos promoting theories of uh, David Icke and Piers Corbyn, as well as an interview in which it is claimed that coronavirus is linked to the QAnon conspiracy and that Madonna revealed her awareness of the pandemic at the 2019 Eurovision Song Contest. The Labour's uh, deputy leader, Angela Rayner, said that after the Conservatives have refused to act, the Prime Minister must intervene urgently to condemn these comments and take action. It also emerged today that Swain uh, had appeared on the Richie Allen Show, a radio broadcast that has previously featured multiple Holocaust deniers and anti-Semites. The uh, Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove told Sky that Swain was out of order and must apologise, saying that I work with Sir Desmond, I have great affection for him, but I'm afraid he is completely out of order. Despite Swain having already refused to apologise, Gove refused to commit his party to taking any further action. Um, Ruth, what was your reaction to Mr Swain's um, amazing pronouncements? Um, do you think that the Tory party will ever do anything about this kind of thing? Does the Tory party ever do anything about that kind of thing? I um, think it's expected is, in Tory MPs, isn't it? Uh, well, I am sure that there are Tory MPs out there that have an inkling of decency within their rape clause hearts. I think the thing that I find really disheartening is that there are people who have a right of centre perspective who have no home to go to. I abhor the Tory party. I think that they are 
descending into just to look at Mr. Sir Swain, you just have to look to see that that he personifies the 1940s spiv British National Party strutting. Am I allowed to say ball bag? I'm not sure. My tolerance <laughs> of of COVID denying, far right, racist, bigoted, xenophobes. I mean, no, no, we can't allow this. We cannot allow this to be okay. But the Tory Party now is so beyond the pale that there's nothing. I mean, we've got we've got people, thousands of people dying. Hundreds of thousands of people dying that didn't have to, to die. But they pursued some mad Bolsonaro philosophy and just there's yeah. a pattern. There's a pattern of those the strong men populist politics. You just have to look at the kind of things that Pretty Patel does, has done. I mean, a woman who basically committed treason uh, in her previous ministerial capacity. Yeah. And and yet and yet in Scotland, I mean, I, I'm all for ethics, absolutely all for ethics in, in broadcasting and I mean, sorry, ethics in, in, in politics and, and every, I'm an ethical person. But I do think the way in which, I mean, the Tory party is now something akin to the, the, the drunk uncle that, that you don't go near at Christmas time because he's kind of like drooling and there's some, there's an odd smell emanating from his trouser <laughs> department, you know, you just, but, <laughs> and yet, oh, this is what I think of when I see Sir Swain, mad racist uncle, yeah. but, but you kind of go, oh, but he's okay, but he knows it's not okay, he's a mad racist, stop listening to him, and yet here, we've kind of, in Scotland, we've got, We've got, yes, I want Scottish politicians to be held to the highest of standards, but I'm very much put in mind, uh, when I look at the current explosion going on in the tiny the tiny world of the Twitter sphere, that I'm very much put in mind of the fact that we put up with four years of Donald Trump in the world, the deaths and the misery and the racists, all those children separated from their families, all yeah. that horror, and it was all because people got squeamish about Hillary Clinton's emails. So can we please in Scotland have a look? Have a look at what's happening in the madness down in Westminster. Have a look at what's happening. Posters and billboards up asking EU citizens, UK citizens from the EU to go home. You know, yeah. it's not it's not okay. None of this is okay. So can we please just focus on getting Scotland out of this madness and take a real hard look because we had Holocaust Remembrance Day the okay. other day, and the point is, the point is that that the Holocaust began with the ballot box. It began yeah. with people spouting hate. It began with people targeting the other, and yeah. those poor souls that were tortured and murdered. That was done under bad laws that were passed. The the murder of all of those millions of people was legal because of those laws that were passed. Now, I do not say it lightly, but I look at what is happening in, in the darkest hole of Westminster, and I think we are in a really dangerous place. None of this is okay. So can we please get our fingers out and have a real serious look? Because people will die and will continue to be dying down the road if we don't sort this out now and have a look at what really matters. Okay, R Ruth, thank you very much. Obviously, you feel very passionately about this. And... Well said in indeed, Ruth. I think that's very good advice. Luckily, we have no shortage of feisty women in Holyrood either. And the next clip I'm going to play, 
I thought was just a wonderful response from Finance Minister Kate Forbes to some nonsense being spouted by Murdo Fraser. So here's Kate putting him back in his box. Kate Forbes. Well, I thank uh, Murdo Fraser for his kind wishes um, at the beginning of his statement. Now, of course, in terms of talking about uh, wasting time, I'm standing here delivering a budget investing £1.1 billion in skills, £6 billion in capital infrastructure and £3.5 billion for social security and welfare payments. Meanwhile, of course, his leader is breaking the spirit of the rules and essential travel to do what? Make the case apparently for the union because he's running scared after poll after poll shows support for independence. But in terms of the substance, of course, I said in my statement, I said that I was grateful for the additional funding. Financially, of course, the UK government has engineered our dependency and reliance on them by denying us reasonable borrowing powers. And it's insulting people's intelligence to suggest Scotland couldn't borrow, like every other country around the world, to intervene. But of course, if the Tories want to claim full responsibility for the economic interventions, then they also need to take responsibility for the dithering and the delays to extending furlough, the huge delay right now to extending non-domestic rates relief, and the potential to take the increased unemployment in April if furlough is not extending. The last point was around the additional funding and there is £1.3 billion that has been confirmed in the UK spending review. That is to cover health, it's to cover transport, it's to cover jobs. We know that the extension to non-domestic rates relief for a full year would cost £900 million. The UK government is currently sitting on £21 billion pounds of announced but undistributed COVID funding and so if the Tories want to provide that relief um, extended for a full year, then they should ask their party leaders in Westminster to release that £21 billion. And as soon as I've got confirmation, I will most certainly extend non-domestic rates relief. Meanwhile, uh, Westminster politics continues its slide towards the gutter, thanks to the most far-right Tory government we've ever had at Westminster. And one of the things that caught my eye was a 10-minute rule motion by Owen Thompson, bill that he's proposing is essentially to to require Tory MPs to come and fess up if they're going to be benefiting from contracts that have been given to friends of theirs. The very idea that we need this kind of bill just shows you how far down the road of corruption and cronyism this government has already gone. Whether the bill ever makes it to see the light of day, who knows? But I thought Owen did a very good job of describing why we needed it and what it is. So here's a clip from Owen Thompson. Ten minute rule motion, Owen Thompson. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. Madam Deputy Speaker, I beg to move that leave be given to bring in a bill to require a minister to make an oral statement to Parliament if a contract is awarded under emergency statutory powers to a person in whom or a company in which a minister has a personal, political or financial interest. Madam Deputy Speaker, today I present an important bill which would help safeguard against the risk of procurement corruption and restore some trust in the integrity of our democratic processes at a time when this trust has been rocked to the core. Anyone in public office should be there to serve the public good, not to exploit their position to line the pockets of themselves, their pals or their party donors. Yet during this crisis, we've seen lucrative contracts go to firms with little experience in public procurement, but with very clear links to people in power. 
Issues with cronyism are not new, but there's been nothing of this scale before, nothing so blatantly disregarding due process. It could be said that a crony virus is threatening the health of our public services and emergency action is needed to get the government under control. I fully understand there was a need to procure goods at a scale and speed never done before when the pandemic struck. So the usual processes to ensure best value to the public purse did have to be set aside. But to many, it looks suspiciously like the emergency has been used as a catch-all excuse by this government to bypass due process at every turn. The National Audit Office reported a staggering £10 billion worth of contracts have been awarded without competition by the end of July last year, and, no, and more than a few of them have raised eyebrows. There are serious questions to be answered about why politically connected and relatively new companies with no track record in procurement were amongst those awarded contracts to supply our NHS. To give just a few examples, the Good Law Project reports that within two weeks of inviting tenders in March last year, the government had 24,000 offers from 16,000 suppliers, many of whom had a wealth of experience in providing PPE for healthcare professionals. Yet three of the biggest beneficiaries of government contracts awards were a Florida-based jewellery company with no experience of supplying PPE, a tiny vermin control operation called PestFix, valued at just 19000 and an opaque family office owned through a tax haven, Ayanda Capital, whose senior advisor also by chance had a role in the Board of Trade. To make matters worse, 50 million masks purchased from Ayanda failed to meet NHS specifications and were never able to be used. Then, as reported in The Guardian, there's the awarding of a £30 million contract to the Health Secretary's former neighbour, who used to run a local pub in his constituency after an initial conversation over WhatsApp. Now, he may well be the best person for that role, but without greater scrutiny and clarity, it's no wonder questions are raised about the legitimacy of such deals. Madam Deputy Speaker, in many ways, you could be forgiven for thinking being a donor to the Tory party must be a carry an inherent specialism on delivering COVID contracts, as Tory donors have really done very well out of this crisis. Millions awarded to firm, firms like Globus Shetland, who donated 400,000 to the Conservatives, or P14 Medical, owned by a Conservative councillor. These issues and details are only public thanks to the efforts of many public-spirited citizens, academics, legal experts, and investigative journalists who are working so hard to shine a light on what's going on in the murky corridors, such as Byline Times, Open Democracy, Transparency UK, and the Good Law Project. There are so many more examples that deserve far greater time and scrutiny than I could give today as I present this bill. So I do look forward to it passing for a second reading, so there's a chance for further debate and more honourable members having the chance to have their say on the issue. In the full light of day, it may well be a scandal to rival or even surpass the MP expense scandal. But even if it's not, we should at least get the regulations in order to prevent any suggestion of corruption setting in. When processes to protect the public purse and ensure fairness are stripped away, it leaves open the clear risk of unscrupulous individuals exploiting the system for private gain. So it's important that the government does all it can to mitigate against those risks. 
Instead, sadly, it seems to have reveled in the freedom to bypass due process. The need for greater scrutiny is clear. The anti-corruption organisation Transparency UK has been looking at the publicly available contract data since February last year and has found that at least 68 of them, worth over £3 billion of public money, that deserve further investigation. The Department of Health and Care awarded 57 of these contracts, 47 of which for personal protective equipment, totalling £2.1 They found 17 of those worth just under a billion relate to companies with political connections. Now, there's no public record to tell us which of these were referred via the high-priority VIP lane, which the government set up to allow suppliers with links to politicians and senior officials to pitch directly. The criteria for this is not clear, and its existence wasn't mentioned in the Cabinet Office guidance note. In fact, we only know about VIP lanes as a result of the report from the National Audit Office. We do know, though, that a still mysterious VIP lane was your best bet for getting a contract. One in 10 offers were successful compared to just 0.7% through normal channels. It's simply appalling that while underpaid frontline staff struggle, billions of pounds in public contracts seem to be handed out like sweeties to people with friends in high places. People with questionable experience but with unquestionable links to power fast-tracked towards big-money deals to supply life-saving equipment. It's been done without competition, behind closed doors, and often producing faulty or substandard goods. Meanwhile, those with a track record in public procurement or an expertise in NHS supplies, but who don't happen to rub shoulders with the right people, have struggled to get a toe in the door. It seems to be much more about who you know and not what you know. There should be absolutely no question mark about the motivation behind COVID-19 contract. It cuts to the heart of how a government operates and what their priorities are. Either it's in the best interest of the public or it's in the interest of lining pockets of their pals. All of us will be paying for these contracts through our taxes for years to come. And tragically, some have paid with their lives for PPE mistakes. So the government must help be held to account for these decisions it's taken. The snow is still falling outside, but luckily the Klax wifeys don't even have to leave their warm houses to get together in the virtual coffee shop. So pour a fresh cup and come and join us, see what we're talking about this week. As always, there's the controversy regarding um, Alava Bull closing. Can I ask what the views are of you guys, but also put in the fact that about 15 years ago, my understanding was that council at the time made the decision not to go ahead when they did the PFI schools to put sewing pools in them. It will mean that the only sewing pool in Clackmannanshire will be in Dollar, which, although the school like think it's theirs, is actually owned by the community as well. In normal times, I go to the swimming club at the academy pool, and, and the community does have a stake in it, but you pay for classes and you still have to book, you know, and they've got various mm. other leisure classes that run there. Um, and the school gets first dibs, so there's not a massive amount of availability, and there certainly are no public swimming sessions. 
So, you know, under the current arrangements, you'd only be able to use it if you're in either the lane swimming thing or the learners group or the kids' lessons. It's not open to the public as such. It was only built to last 10 years, apparently, and it's been up for like 30 plus years. Mm. So from that point of view, you kind of understand that like maintenance costs are really high. The council were funded just short of the tune of £300,000. But that was just for wet side because the wet side didn't make profit. The rest of the, the classes in the gym, they were making a profit, but the wet side didn't make any profit. So the council funding went to cover kind of losses that were made of the pool. Um, side. But there's no, as you say, there's no other swimming facilities. So that's like the club gone, the Golden Girls gone, aqua aerobics, all these kind of things. The actual, the whole place of it, I mean, the last time they, they spoke about it, we had a massive petition and it gave us a kind of stay of execution. Yeah. We've always said there's plans to build another community leisure facility. Mm-hmm. And we were, the reason for our protest was, was kind of like, well, get that going and then shut the leisure bowl. Did they down. not try and do that with the Alva swimming pool that when they built the new high school in Alva, they knocked down the school, but they'd, they'd originally left the swimming pool and that was to be a community yeah. facility. But there was some problem with, was it the electrics or something? And it ended well, up not, never being used. It, they could have had that as a solar powered. It had an incredibly innovative heating system for that pool. But nobody was trained in how to use it properly, so it was fucked up fairly quickly. Um, There used to be a pool in Lawrence Hill as well, which was used, and you could do diving practice there. So Mm. once the new schools were built, there was nothing. Um, That is part of the issue, is that when those decisions were made... The whole leisure bowl thing, I mean, that's what people were saying. You know, it may have been run down, but it was our run down place. And for lots of people, it was a hub. I mean, I went there from we came here and I started mm. teaching. We used to go out every Sunday as a, for a family swim. All the mm. kids have been through swimming lessons. Well, they actually went to Lawrence, to Lawrence Hill to swim at Tulligar. Then I had like eight years at the club as a committee member slash coach. You know, all that's gone. Jamie, that's her job gone. Mm. But she's got nowhere to teach out of now. When we first arrived in Alawa, the club, you could join as a little kiddie at five, six, and go all the way through to European level. It was one of the best clubs in Scotland. And I don't think the people of Alawa appreciated just how good that club was. It was a very warm, welcoming club. I can't begin to tell you how brilliant that was. So it was very sad to hear of the demise of the um, leisure bowl. I'm glad you're talking about this because the, the first thoughts that go through my mind regarding this is disaster capitalism. This is the end of an era. All these mm. things are all collapsing all around. All this infrastructure is gone. And it, it's a great opportunity for politicians. They want to invest in shovel ready projects in local communities through local councils. So if they came in to a local Tory council and said, We see your um, swimming pool's knackered, we'll give you the cash. Um, we'll build you a swim pool. Oh, and uh, we'll open the alloys to Dunfermline and Dale And they jump on all these things mm. and they, they sway the voters to get the talk. The Ruth Davidson Memorial Pool, that's what it'd be called. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect an awful lot of people will want to see her at the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that that <laughs> oh, it's going to have flags all over. You can imagine the tiling yeah. would be in the shape of a yeah. Union Jack. It is a vital 
lesson to learn in life. It's not just about swimming competitions, it's about, about safety for all. Mm. Um, I wondered whether letters denouncing the fact that actually it was the Labour administration at the time might be yeah. a move. Because actually it's all very well focusing on today's uh, administration, but actually the funding is is minuscule at the moment. We're having mm. to fork out well, particularly in Clax, a massive amount of money for the PFIs. And that just eats the budget up. It's about 750,000 a month. Three quarters of a million a month is paid out in PFI payments. And the schools and all the PFI stuff. Oh, no, what do the councils did? absolutely horrific, but that's what people need to know. Mm. They don't appreciate that that's why there's no money around. You know, and it's and it's all blame. I hate to say it, but it's blame on something that happened ten years ago. But you have to f- really focus on that because those were really incredibly stupid decisions, which mm-hmm. are killing off what you can do now. You know, it was right just, about it was, you know that whole you know so many families and ours are included. You know, before lockdown, that would be a weekend thing, and mm-hmm. you know when mm-hmm. it all starts up again, we won't have something in class. The kids will still want to have. Well, as a family, we'll want to have that swimming mm. every weekend morning and then go for a treat afterwards so mm. the, the individual that made that decision reckoned that people in clacks could just go through to sterling but they could but then as Tuleri's just said that means that the money is not being spent mm. in clacks and equally you're going to have something to eat afterwards maybe a couple of coffees kids are going to want whatever you know and then you've got whatever you're doing that afternoon so someone like clacks that's taking your cash out of Clackmannanshire and all the business that goes with it, multiplied up by the number of families that did that. And that looking, just looking at the five of us, at least four of us, that was a weekend regular. You haven't got a car, not straightforward, yeah. you know? But this I, whole 20-minute neighbourhood, you want things available where people are. You don't want people mm-hmm. travelling all across the country to access leisure, because then what you're and doing, again, you're adding to all the pollution. And but again, it's like a, a class divide as well. Only mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. With, with cars or whatever can afford to take their kids somewhere else. And if you yeah. say all the money's then going out of Clackmannanshire, people would go to the leisure bowl and either go, I used to go and do the gym classes in the morning and then we'd go through to the bar and the cafe and sit and have our breakfast and at the bar and have a, you know, breakfast and a coffee. Or other people would go to Orlandi's because it was next to the leisure bowl, we'd go for a swim mm. and then walk out and go down for an ice cream or macaroni cheese or whatever. So it'll impact on all the, the small local businesses. What's our local MP saying about it? Well, it was only announced, what, yesterday, so... Well, was it? I mean, that might be a, a starting point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Joey, with the culture connection, but he, there's a real opportunity here for him to really bed in with the interests of the local community um, and yeah, really absolutely. get a chance to listen to them. But, Delary, the money, where does the money come from? Uh, at this point, I don't care where the money comes from, but I just really don't want it to come uh, branded with a, a uh, union, union flag. Mm. I can trust that the locals around here will probably go and spray paint over anything like that. We don't have the magic money tree. Where's the mm. and until we When Tots was at school, her school up the road didn't have a pool. They built it. It was obviously a very small 25-metre pool with four lanes with a gym attached and two, two lots of changing rooms for 750000 Now, I appreciate you won't go for a four-metre pool here, and there are loads of other facilities that you need in the background, but that sort of sum of money, compared with what's being spent on a monthly basis, really puts 
into. I, I just it yeah. just brings tears to my eyes. We're what only a couple of weeks out from Holyrood elections. I wonder what our MSPs are saying. See, that's that's the danger I think as well as people are going to use this, and because it's because yeah. we're an SNP administration here, they've made that decision. They're going to say, oh. "Who is the SNP?" And despite saying. Because people always say, oh, you always go back and say Westminster's fault or it's somebody else's fault. But you inherit what you inherit and you have to deal with it. And you've not made those decisions. You've got the legacy of paying out three quarters of a million a month in, in yeah. PFI payments that you yeah. did not. Sheer volume yeah. of money that's wasted paying off to a private company. And then at the end of the 30-year PFI contract, they then get the right to buy. They don't own it. It's not like a mortgage that they're paying off. The whole discussion of Fiona always comes back to the magic money tree and it always comes yeah. back to currency. And some of the SNP are still clinging to sterilisation for two years attached to the Bank of England. They just can't get themselves away from that idea. That's two years of devastation that England could cause in Scotland. There's a conference at Independence Live is hosting it and it's on 25th, I think, and it's hopping one of those free they've got a whole range of speakers and they're looking at the the growth commission which was 2018 it was like looking at it now from our perspective currently what do we think of it and did anybody else watch question time last night as it was a donkey scottish uh, contingent no it was Jean no, Friedman, i might have recently been able to lose weight but i felt vomiting at my dinner back up so you shared earlier joy about who was going to be on it and i'm thinking Michael Forsyth seems like from eons ago. You know, he's only he's only six years older than Fiona and I. Like he's about ninety five, and his comments were of somebody who is about ninety five. Mm. You know, it's Brexit loving House of Lords. Now. Yeah, but mm. it, it was just quite interesting. He did more good for Indy than anybody else last night. <laughs> Did you see the the clip that's been doing the rounds of George Monbiot and him taking down Andrew Bowie? Because even my mum was saying about that. She says, your uncle Randall sent me something about this guy getting a reel. And I went, would it be George Monbiot and Andrew Bowie? Yeah, yeah, that was the one. I said, yeah. But isn't Um, it ridiculous that it takes somebody who's living in England, an English person, to look at us and think, I don't know why they're not independent. Sorry, thank goodness somebody else is seeing yeah. it and, and more I think more people down south are seeing it it's just yeah. they don't have an exit strategy there's plenty of them like Will Self who he has his column in the back of like the European and he said it years ago about you know if any small nation can do it Scotland can do it what yeah. the fuck are you hanging about here for the other thing I saw there was a Joanna Cherry at Westminster and the debate must have been something to do with maternity rights bill and they've taken the word woman out of the maternity rights bill. So she did a very, very eloquent contribution on, let's get real here, this chest feeding word that's entered the vernacular this week. She says, you know, there's one thing supporting people's rights, everybody's rights. Nobody's saying take away anybody's rights. But language is powerful. And, you know, if you try and eradicate women and women's experience from language then we're all the poorer for it. And it's, you know, it's like, get back in your box, women. I had to look up what cis women meant. I am, somebody said, uh, I am a cis woman. I'm like, what does that mean? That's oh, right. You were born as a woman and you identify as a woman and you're just yeah. like, right, so you're a woman. You don't <laughs> need the, the, the cis in front mm. of it whatsoever. You're a woman. And I like 
one of the, the stoners, she did a wee TikTok and it was hysterical and she says, I was born as a woman, I identify as a woman, but according to Marks and Spencer's sticky talky pudding, I'm a family of four. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> but this is the thing that where it's gone, for me, over the line. It's, I mean, I don't have any qualms about everybody should have the right to feel safe and everybody has the right to live how they want. But why my experience as a woman has to be eradicated so it doesn't offend somebody who's in a group who've got a different perspective. Fair enough, their experience is equally valid, but it doesn't mean that ours has to be removed from the language. Joanna's point was actually by by eradicating the word woman from the maternity provisions, they were in effect breaking the Equalities Act. Say, but we need to be more vocal on it. We probably it. do. It's and it's thrown back. It's really it's hard to... It's thrown back at us as being a generational problem. Yeah. I actually find it quite offensive now. I'm not somebody who used to jump up and down about women's rights, but I'm finding this issue... Yeah. really quite difficult and the language and it, element is separate I think to the whole GRA it's just a different layer that somebody's added on I mean mm. I think in the two statements that there was the statement that Nicola Sturgeon made FMQs where she said trans rights must be respected women's rights must be respected we need to find a way to make sure that everybody feels protected and the group that are in the middle that's causing everybody the issue is the predatory men and that's the one of the fears from the women's perspective is, well, does this then allow men to access spaces that they shouldn't? So that's the sort of one bucket. And then you've got in the other bucket, you've got what Joanna was saying about the language and how the the effect of going down that route is that you erase women's experiences, which kind of rolls back 90 years of campaigning mm-hmm. to get our experience up there. That's why I was interested that you had said, uh, Joy, that, you know, it was probably in the gay community who'd be particularly vociferous about that and start using the words transphobic because obviously they have a hideous track record of finding themselves in male predatory situations mm. as well and needing their own needing to feel safe themselves there's other situations like the women in sport i don't know how they fix that one that's a really difficult one because you cannot get to a resolution unless you can have a discussion without screaming i mean somebody else has already said it's distinctly generational and and watching I, I would suggest that that's the case as well I mean the youngsters are quite quite it is quite hard going and actually they themselves will admit they know nothing about sport you sit there going <laughs> they also <laughs> haven't had the experience of had to having to fight for their rights all the way through their well, exactly. 40 year career I think they, they don't know how lucky they are mm. because they're in the position they're in because of what what we did generations before have gone through and you know the the they ask them about going for a job interview. None of them will turn around and say, like, I can give examples of, I was asked, was I moving? Did I want to join the police to find a man? Was it my intention? How many children was I going to have? How long was it going to last before I left the police? Um, all these kind of things that they can no longer do or say in interviews because it's been recognised that they're, they're, they're unfair, you know. Um, I was at stage 19. You had to choose whether you wanted to have your annual appraisal shared with you or not. And I said, yes, what are you saying about me? They went, why do you want to see this? Surely you'll get married and leave. Written off at 19. Mm, I remember just going being in a job and having my, my bra felt <laughs> my boss. Yeah. You know? However, this happy days though those were, 
I mean, there must have been similar kind of high emotion in Ireland. They were discussing changes to the abortion debate, for example, and the what was the other one that was tied in with that? Was it gay marriage? So those are quite emotive subjects, and they managed to come to a conclusion that then reflected the vote of the society when the question was put to them. So although you're you're right, Larry, we are we may be able to discuss things because we know each other and we're all, we have things in common, although that doesn't mean all our opinions are exactly the same. It means we've got something to work on. But I wonder if that Citizens' Assembly might be the, the way to go for this particular debate because uh, I can't see anything else that's big enough. Yeah. yeah, it's the listening. We need, there needs to be more listening. Yeah, and facts as well. <laughs> Not just assumptions and perceptions and prejudices, just actual... Uh. Practical facts. <laughs> Happy birthday, Delaney. Thank you very much. Oh, that reminds me. First well, I actually think this is something all of us have a duty to speak out on. I've got a duty and a responsibility to tackle transphobia if it exists in my own party. I've got a duty as First Minister to make sure that the Scottish Government uh, protects and enhances the rights of trans people. But uh, I, I don't think there is anybody across this chamber in their own organisations or in terms of Scottish society as a whole uh, can sit back and, and rest on their laurels here. This is a, a really important issue. I, I'm a lifelong feminist. I understand the concerns that women have about abuse, misogyny, the erosion of women's rights. I face, like women across this chamber and across society do, uh, vile misogynistic attacks every single day of my life. But as a woman, uh, I know the threat to my safety is from abusive men. It's not from trans uh, women. Uh, I recognise the concern uh, that abusive men will exploit trans rights to harm women, and we've got to address that. These are debates we must have openly and honestly, but we can never allow any debate to become a cover for transphobia. Transphobia is wrong. It's as wrong as racism. It's as wrong as homophobia. Trans people have the same rights as any of us to feel safe, secure and valued for who they are. And I, as First Minister, as leader of the SNP, and just as a citizen of this country, will stand against prejudice, discrimination and bigotry wherever I encounter it. And that's not about political expediency or otherwise. That's a simple matter of conscience. And I think that's the approach everybody should take. Uh, video link to Joanna Cherry. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. It's an honour and a privilege to follow the the Honourable Member for Belfast South and the Right Honourable Member for Normanton, Pontefract and Castleford. I welcome this bill, but as others have said, it doesn't go far enough to tackle maternity discrimination. That said, I'm delighted for the Attorney General and I wish her every blessing with her pregnancy. I want to focus my concerns on one aspect of this bill, which has been mentioned already, why does this bill make no mention of women? It is women who give birth and women who benefit from maternity leave. Is this a reflection of the ideological language which is now seen across schools, universities and the NHS, which bans use of the word women 
and use of the word lesbian? Why must we deny the fact that there are two sexes and why must we deny that biological sex exists? Why is the government not complying with the Equality Act of 2010? That legislation refers to pregnancy and maternity and uses the day-to-day language of centuries, woman, she and her. If this is an innocent mistake, then let's put it right quickly and easily by replacing the word person with woman. But if it's not, let's talk just for a moment about the erasure of women. Most women don't even know that this erasure of their sex class is going on. And when they find out, they are appalled. They they can't believe it. Those of us who try to warn of the consequences of the erasure of biological reality and and the reality of womanhood from legislation are often pilloried. Many politicians are now so enthralled to those who wish to erase women for the purposes of advancing gender identity theory that they call those of us who advocate for women's sex-based rights transphobic, even when we have never done or said anything against equal rights for trans people in our lives, and even when some of us were trans allies before it was fashionable to be such. Madam Deputy Speaker, it is not transphobic to advocate for women's sex-based rights under the Equality Act. It is possible and right to support both trans rights and women's rights. Neither should be sacrificed for the sake of the other. We can have an inclusive society for everyone without doing that. Sex is a protected characteristic for a very good reason. Discrimination against women is rooted in their biology. That is our lived experience. We must find a way to be inclusive without erasing women's biology and women's lived experience from the statute book. So why is this bill doing that? Women are not chest feeders, a phrase we heard earlier this week. Women have breasts and women feed their children with their breasts. Lesbians are same-sex attracted. We are attracted to women's bodies, not men's bodies. And to say we must be attracted to men's bodies is homophobic. These things need to be said, Madam Deputy Speaker, and they need to be said in this Mother of Parliaments. So let's put this bill right and reflect the reality and the law as set out in the Equality Act and supported by the CEDAW Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And that's about it for this episode. Hope you found that interesting and not too controversial. And just to leave everybody on a happy note, here's that wonderful clip of new Scottish hero George Monbiot. Thanks for listening. Bye now. Um, Look, if I lived in Scotland, I would want to get out of this chaotic, dysfunctional, corrupt union as quickly as I could. And the same applies to Wales. The same applies to Northern Ireland. I can't see the point of staying in the United Kingdom, of being um, chained to the United Kingdom like like a block of concrete as the boat begins to founder. Because, you know, the promise given to Scotland was, if you stay in the Union, you will have stability. 
If you become independent, it'll be chaotic. Um, if you stay in the union, you'll have political choice. You'll be able to have a stable currency. You'll, you'll, you'll be part of, of something which will allow you to punch above your weight on the global stage, all of that. All of those promises have been busted by Brexit. And it seems to me that in both straightforward instrumental terms and in ideological terms, okay. Scotland would be much better off out of the United Kingdom and yep. in the European Union. Right. Same for Wales, same for, for reunifi reunification in Ireland. I mean, being ruled by Westminster is bad enough if you live in England. But um, having this bunch of elite people who really have no contact, even with most of those in England, telling you what to do when you're in Scotland, I would find that intolerable. All right, we are going to leave it there. Show to be speaking from Scotland, living in Scotland uh, right now. So the idea that we are some, some sort of elite well, you're part of have it. no interaction with... You're a part of that them. elite. You're a part of that corrupt, dysfunctional Westminster government. Why, why, why <laughs> right. should you not? Why should you feel okay. any differently? Well, I'm not even going to bother responding to that. Thank you.